Today's sermon text is Ruth 2, 1 through 23. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 222. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have now come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. May God bless the reading of his word.
Let's pray as we go to God's word together. Father, just just help our posture now as we approach your word, that we would have a right reverence for it and what you are about to say to us, what you have to teach us this morning. Open minds, ears, hearts, lives to receive and then to apply truth from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me, um, let me welcome you back. Uh, we are now in week two of a four-week journey through the book of uh, Ruth. If you were not here last week, uh, hopefully that sermon uh, can be found on the website. Uh, be good to go back, maybe listen to that. Just a little bit of context, understanding for the whole journey. Uh, a lot's usually given in the first sermon, so just uh, you may need that. I'll try to get us up to speed just a little bit. Um, I mentioned this last week, but Ruth is a bit like, uh, you know, God's version of a Hallmark movie, but it's actually good and has a point and it's instructive. And so uh, for that reason, it's not really like a Hallmark movie, but um, I trust this journey will be edifying for us. I, I think it will. So let's just lean into it. Uh, this is one of the most well-tread love stories uh, in the Bible, maybe uh, throughout history. I don't really have any authority uh, to say that, but since it's God's word and it's a great love story, we'll just we'll just we'll, we'll give it that label. Uh, but it's not just the love story on the surface that we see um, that, that we're trying to unpack. It's the love story behind the scenes that we don't want to miss as we walk through this journey, because behind the tale of Ruth and Boaz is a tale of redemption, as we talked about last week, a tale of how God brings people from despair to delight, from hurt uh, to hope. Um, this is truly a story for everyone. You think love story? Okay, I don't really have anything I want to look at there. But this is a story for everyone because it's a story uh, that, that, that is about where we'll all be at some point in our lives. There is something here, no matter where you are in life, because uh, you'll, you'll get there at some point. At some point, uh, all of us are going to wonder what God is doing and where he's at. All of us are going to wonder that. We've maybe done that before, maybe there right now, maybe there soon enough. One day we'll question God amidst uh, difficulty. Uh, one day we'll wonder, is God really worth living for? It's kind of difficult to live for God. Is it worth it? Uh, or we will question if God can actually do anything through my ordinary life and my ordinary uh, circumstances. Okay? Uh, or uh, we'll... We'll be put in front of people that will be struggling or walking through uh, all of those questions and, and doubts and, and things. And then we may be God's instrument uh, of grace uh, to them. This story speaks to all of these different situations and all of these different questions and all of these different uh, wonderings. It, it equips us for those moments as we walk through them or as we help others walk through them. So with that in view, let's let's get back to the story. And so what you just heard read was was chapter two in the book. So we're covering one chapter per week or to uh, to pick up on the language that we used last week. We, we are covering one act per week. So this is more of a drama. Uh, so we're viewing this in acts. So we are in act two uh, of the drama. Now, before we, we sort of close the curtains uh, at the end of act one last week. And so before we open the curtains back up, let's just kind of step back and do a quick reminder of what happened in Act 1, what got us up to this point. So we know that this story, the book of Ruth, occurred in the time of the judges. Uh, if you don't know anything about judges, just that's not a bright spot in Old Testament history. So really tough times uh, uh, set the context for this book. 
And then we see that this this time in particular is marked by a famine in the land in Bethlehem, which is literally called the house of bread. There is no bread. And in Ruth, the camera sort of zooms in. You've got the book of Judges and you've got everything going on in Judges. And the, the camera sort of zooms in on one particular family and follows a journey of what I'm just going to call bad decisions. Okay, a lot of bad decisions. The father, Elimelech, decides to pull his family out of the land, out of the promised land that God had given his people and lead them into a land of compromise, a land known as Moab, a place with a not so pleasant history for the people of God. Elimelech dies, leaving his wife and two kids. His sons continue the legacy of bad decisions and they take Moabite wives. Okay, that was something that would not been seen as good. Uh, Then the sons die. And we are quickly left with the the story is quickly left with Naomi, Elimelech's wife and her two Moabite daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth. Then we get the first indication of God's favor in the book, a ray of light, so to speak. Naomi hears that God has visited his people back in Bethlehem. Okay, the famine has been lifted. There is food in the land. So she decides we're going to go back home. I'm going to go back home. On the way, at some point in the journey, she decides to try to talk her daughters-in-law out of going back with her. Orpah listens, turns around, goes back to Moab. Ruth clings to her, makes an incredible statement of commitment, and they travel on. So Naomi and Ruth make their trek back to Bethlehem, which causes a kind of stir. You know, we kind of framed it like small town, somebody coming home after they've been off for a while, and everybody knows and everybody's talking about it. Naomi's walking back into town. Everybody's going, is this Naomi? She takes it upon herself to rename herself. I'm no longer Naomi. I am Mara. Because in her eyes, she has moved from sweet to bitter. So she renames herself. And right before the curtain closes on Act Act 1, we, we, we were told, okay, uh, we're, we're kind of set up for Act 2. We were told that it is the beginning of the barley harvest. So kind of the second ray of light. She had... She had heard God's people or that God had visited his people. So there's food in the land. And now he's signaling, yep, there's food in the land and the curtain closes. All right. And that sets up act two where we find ourselves this morning. All right. And suddenly curtain opens. Journey continues. Here's what we're going to do with the second act. I'm going to mix it up just a little bit from last week. All right. I kind of like the acts and scenes part. But uh, last week it was act one with five scenes. And that we used to walk through the story this week, we're going to cover the story through four characters. All right. So act two, four characters, kind of like those movies that tell one story and they just keep telling the story. But then they go back and find another character and tell the story again from their vantage point, And they just keep kind of jumping back and seeing different vantage points of the same story through the characters. So we're, we're going to try to do that. We're going to make an attempt to do that. Um, so we're going to start this morning by diving into four character studies. All right. Four character studies. And I'll give this to you as we go. And they should be on the uh, screens. And so that you are fully prepared for where we are heading when we get done with four character studies, we're going to have four related appeals. OK, four related appeals, just really one application from each character study. There's a lot more here, but that's that's all we have time to do. We could never exhaust everything. Uh, in this text, but four character studies, four related uh, appeals. All right. Before we get to the first study, let me let me offer one. I'll call it a reminder, but we may not have gotten too deep on this last week. Uh, but I said last week that Ruth is the answer to the question that the book of Judges proposes. 
How is God going to get his people out of the situation in Judges? How is he going to deliver them out of that mess that they're in in the situation in Judges? Or more specifically, how is God going to get his people from Judges to David, to King David? Okay, That would be a narrow version of the question that Ruth answers. There's a broader version of the same question, and you could put it this way. How is God going to get his people from engrossed in sin to being rescued by the Messiah, the promised Messiah? When you turn to the book of Matthew, we looked at this for a moment last week. You see how Ruth answers the broader question as well as the more narrow question. Ruth is a part of the genealogy that we see in Matthew that gets us from Abraham To Jesus Christ, who is called, according to Matthew, the son of David. For us, the ultimate end game of the book of Ruth is Jesus Christ. It helps us connect Old Testament history dots and get to his coming. But it also it doesn't just connect historical dots for us and kind of show how we got from point A to point B to point C and along the way. It also helps us to see his character and his work. So Boaz got a new character this week. Boaz, for instance, is one of many figures that prefigures Christ. Okay, what happens to Ruth is also a picture of what Jesus has done for us. So we just get a picture of who Christ is and what he has done in the characters and in the story and how it plays out. This will all become very clear by the time we get to chapter four. But it's it's worth sort of spoiling the end to get to the point now. Basically, Jesus is the point of Ruth. And just to press pause there for a moment, if you are here this morning, we want to be clear on this point. We want to be clear on this point. Hopefully every week, Jesus is the point. He is why we are here today. He is why, Lord willing, we will come back next week. He is why we were here last week. We know him or better. He knows us and we are gathered because of him. Because he has saved us, because he has reconciled us, because he has made us into a body called the church. He has moved us to use some of the themes of Ruth here. He's moved us from bitterness from emptiness to fullness. Okay? He's, he's transitioned all of us in that way. We are studying Ruth because he loves us, because we love him and we want to know more of him. You can think about it like this way. Why read all four Gospels? Because they're telling a lot of the same stories. You read all four Gospels because you kind of want to pivot around and see every angle that God has given you to view Christ and to know Jesus. Well, Ruth is the same way. We're, we're, we're looking at Ruth and we're, we're given another angle, okay? Another, another vantage point to see Jesus and to see the Messiah that is to come and how God was working all of this out in redemptive history. So Jesus is the point. So if you're here this morning and you don't, you don't know Jesus, you don't know that he's the point, you aren't following him, maybe you're not even clear on what that means. We're, we're glad that in God's kindness, to use another theme of the book, that you are here. We want to help you to better understand why Jesus is the point and the fact that he is the point. So the door is open, so to speak. You have questions, we are available for you. I hope you'll walk this journey with us and learn more about Jesus as we, the church, continue to grow in Jesus. That's why we're doing this. We want to grow in our understanding, our relationship with Jesus. 
This is all ultimately about his life, his death and his resurrection and what he has accomplished and how we are to live in light of that. So stick with us in this journey and hopefully you'll understand either why we're crazy or you'll you'll figure out what we've we've figured out. Okay. All right. For now, four character studies, some quicker than others. First, let's start with the courageous humility of Ruth, the courageous humility of Ruth. I've done my best to somewhat summarize these characters in how I've ordered these three points. But honestly, it's hard to do justice to what is revealed about them and the complexity of these characters. So hopefully I don't pigeonhole them by, you know, the the, the phraseology here, if you want to put it that way. So. Ruth, um, she steps center stage uh, in chapter one with the commitment that she made to Naomi. Okay, really her conversion in chapter one. But then she's seemingly and literally ignored on the rest of the journey back. Okay, you come to the end of chapter one and she's just sort of mentioned, but it, it, it says that Naomi ignored her. She didn't say a word after that. So the spotlight, she steps center stage, but the spotlight wasn't really shining on her. But now the spotlight is about to shine brightly on her. And here's a note that I think adds something to how Ruth might fit in the overall context of the Old Testament and not just the character, but the book. Okay, so think about this. Uh, Different Hebrew Bibles order the books of the Old Testament differently. Okay, and in some of those Hebrew Bibles, Ruth comes after Proverbs. And if you know how Proverbs ends, then you you see that why this might be. Proverbs ends with a description of what people like to call the Proverbs 31 woman. Or if you've got subtitles in your Bible and you flip to the book of Proverbs and you look at 31, you see it says a woman who fears the Lord about midway through the proverb. Ruth, in many ways, is a Proverbs 31 woman. So if you've ever wanted, what is a biblical example of that proverbial woman Then here's Ruth. Enter Ruth. So that might help you understand her character. But go back and read that and kind of see how she lives that out. Now, our author or narrator here wants us to make sure that we do not forget one particular thing about uh, Ruth. Okay, he does not want us to forget something that really helps to color in the picture of who she is. So I touched on this last week. But as the two ladies are coming back from Bethlehem, the narrator ensures that we know that Ruth is from Moab. Okay, verse 22, so you can back up to chapter 1. Ruth is called Ruth the Moabite. And then he mentions, the the, the narrator, the author mentions that they returned from Moab. So he's kind of saying it twice there. Well, he just continues that same line of reinforcement. You're going to make sure, we're going to make sure that you remember that this lady is from Moab. All right. He wants the reader to know her origin and her ethnicity. Verse two of chapter two and Ruth, the Moabite. You see it again. Okay, we just had it. We're going to see it again in verse two. Verse six, the servant in the field describes her by where she's from, the young Moabite woman. And he doubles up again who came with Naomi from Moab. And then just in case we forget, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, verse 21 again and Ruth, the Moabite. We're not going to forget this. Okay? It's repeated that many times. You need to you need to take note of it. Ruth is an outsider. Okay? And her standing is not to be lost or forgotten because it is significant. We're obviously supposed to carry this through the story with us. So here's what we have. Okay, That's communicating a lot of things. But here's what we have in Ruth. We have a widowed, single, childless foreigner. An immigrant who is dirt poor. 
who lives with her older, widowed, childless, poor mother-in-law. Okay, How does Ruth respond to that situation that can't get much more desperate? Verse 2. She asked her mother-in-law to go glean in a local field. Basically, she's going to go work to provide both for herself and her mother-in-law. It's not clear why Naomi is not doing anything. Maybe age, maybe grief, maybe bitterness. Maybe she's given up. Not, not sure why she doesn't at least accompany Ruth, but she doesn't. Now, there's a good bit wrapped up in this. And this, in her going out to glean, there's a lot wrapped up in that. But at a base level, it would have taken courage. A lot of courage. Remember, she is a woman in a man-dominated society. She's single and she's a foreigner. And maybe that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like too much to us, but the rest of the story signals that comes with a host of issues in this context. She's an outsider. How, how is she going to be received as an outsider? And it's obviously dangerous. Okay, we see Boaz give her instructions regarding where to stay to avoid being assaulted. Naomi later says the same thing. That, that's obviously a thing or it wouldn't have come up twice. So to walk out the door of wherever it is they're saying, that took courage by itself. To go out into the field just by itself took courage. It also took faith, okay? You have to assume at some point in this story that Naomi has been teaching Ruth something regarding God's law. Somebody's been teaching Ruth something regarding God's law. And Ruth knew that God had set up laws to care for the poor and the immigrant. Okay, you go to Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, we're not going to go there right now. And we see that the harvesters were told to leave grain on the edges of the field. This is generally so that the economically vulnerable, as we'll call them, can go through and gather what was left or what was dropped. Okay, this was set up by God for people like Ruth. She was qualified in a host of ways. But her qualifications also made her very vulnerable. So she's stepping out with what we'll just call a courageous faith going into these fields. So it's not necessarily a safe thing, and it certainly wasn't an easy thing. This would have been seen as hard work with not a ton of return. Okay, there's a ton of return in the text, but generally speaking, hard work and you don't get a lot from it. It really all depended on how well the person that followed God's law was like adhering to it and how much was being left. In so many ways, she's stepping out dependent upon someone to show her unmerited favor, which we see that she gets. So we see a courageous faith in Ruth. We also see a diligent work ethic. Okay, You start to see that Proverbs 31 woman being revealed here. In verse 7, the servant Boaz engages, says that Ruth had basically been working without a break until Boaz got there. And then according to verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. And then, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. I've never beat out grain, so just use your imagination. I don't reckon it's easy, but she, she worked all day and then beat out the grain and then makes the journey home. Listen to this. End of verse 17. I think it's significant. She ended up with an ephah of barley and proceeds to carry it back to Naomi. Okay, we don't deal in those measurements in our day, but the best I could find was it's probably about 30 pounds. Could be up to 50 pounds. The average male worker in that day would have yielded two pounds a day. 
She's got roughly 30 to carry home with her. Now, the fact that she gets this much points to the other characters in the story as well. But she worked for this and then carried it back. Couldn't help reading this week. I got a picture in my mind. I remember going to uh, South Sudan years ago and you would just constantly see these ladies out walking with the big water drums on their head, going out daily, if not multiple times a day to go fetch water to just basically for their livelihood, to go back and cook and clean and do all of that. And here they are, they're carrying it on their heads. I don't know about you. Try putting a five gallon bucket full of water on your head and walking with. That's just a picture that I have of Ruth here. Hauling the barley back to town. Ruth may be a destitute, childless, foreign widow, but she is by no means weak. So we see a courageous faith, a diligent work ethic. We also see a humble posture. She knew how to take initiative without being presumptuous. She doesn't assume a handout. She's not looking for a handout. She asked the worker if she could go glean in the field. The worker said, she asked me about this. She is astonished at how Boaz treats her and speaks to her. She doesn't presume upon privilege. She sees his reaction as grace. She even labels her own self as a foreigner in verse 10. She views herself as occupying the lowest rung on the ladder. There's a humility in how she works and how she responds and how she treats her mother-in-law. It's evident that Boaz didn't know her. He wouldn't have had to ask who she was if he knew her, but he knew of her. In verse 11, Boaz recounts how the word had spread of her kindness to Naomi. Ruth has every reason in the world to lay down, resent her situation, give up. But instead of doing so, she gives us an incredible example of humility, of initiative, of faith. She sought work and sustenance, not just for herself, but for others. That's our first character. That's, that's just one character. Next character study, let's look at the extraordinary kindness of Boaz. The extraordinary kindness of Boaz. If you were here last week, I mentioned this idea of kindness is a major theme in the book of Ruth and really throughout the rest of Scripture. Well, Boaz is a model of what it looks like. Kind of left it vague and ambiguous last week. You know, some kind of definition comes in our minds when I say kindness. Boaz is a definition of kindness. So so is Ruth for that matter. But we get a lot of detail on kindness According to Boaz here. So Boaz gets a heck of an introduction in the story before he even enters the stage. The the narrator, the author sort of props him up, gets us ready for Boaz. Verse two, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let's make it plain and simple. If you are called a worthy man in scripture, that's a good thing. Like if you're inscribed in scripture as a worthy man that's good. Like you, you've got some favor on you. So here's a man worth following. Here's a man worth emulating. A worthy man. Okay, that language, worthy man, it's really complex, kind of hard to nail down. It's used in other places as a mighty man of war. But we don't know if Boaz ever went to war, is in the military or anything. It's also used to talk about someone's moral, financial, social standing, their integrity. It's a full word. A man of influence, a man of means. 
We're really not sure of all the names in this book. We're really not sure what the name Boaz means. But Solomon, who will later build the temple, name one of the pillars of the temple Boaz. So there's some sense of strength or foundation, something solid, something supportive here. I think you put all this together. The narrator is setting us up. He's saying in our language, this is a knight knight in shining armor. That's what this is. Think about it. The curtain closes on Acts 1 and you got two desperate widows and you open up the curtain and you got Boaz. I think that gives meaning to his name. A man of strength, a man of integrity, a man of means and stature. This is a not so subtle hint from our author about what is coming. And we'll just make note of the fact that he's from Elimelech's family. Okay, we'll save that mostly for the next chapters. But as Naomi tells us in verse 20, that makes him one of their redeemers. Another very pregnant term in this book, really in the entire Bible, really gets fleshed out in chapter 4. So we'll try to kind of save some of that for chapter 4, not spoil the entirety of the ending. For now, there's a lot we can glean from uh, the character of Boaz, as if the narrator hasn't set him up well enough. I love how Boaz enters the scene here. Okay, the narrator loves to draw attention to Boaz. Verse four, behold, Boaz came. Okay, behold, Boaz came. I don't know any Hamilton fans in the room. Anybody a fan of Hamilton? Two of you. Okay, great. Four. Never mind. This will not. Go well, then. All right. So I just, I just kept thinking in the mind, you know, the, the, the act or the scene when they introduced George Washington, like, ladies and gentlemen, here comes the general. Right. So just see him walking into the picture right here. Uh, that's what I. So go watch Hamilton. That'll make more sense. But um, Boaz comes out of the gate revealing his character. All right. He's introduced with a bang and then he comes out with a bang. This is a man that takes his faith to work. Uh, this greeting is not a throwaway line. Verse four, he greets the reapers. The Lord be with you. To which he answers, the Lord bless you. Anybody's boss ever said that? How many in you, how many of you in here who are bosses walk in and say the Lord be with you? Okay. And then your employees respond back, the Lord bless you. Boaz's faith is evident right out of the gate. He doesn't, God doesn't waste words in scripture. That's there for a reason. It is, it is signaling something for us about Boaz. And here's what I think it's helpful to see this because it's helpful to see this greeting right out of the gate because the works, as we'll call them, what we see flow out of Boaz, the good that he does, the kindness that he shows, these things flow from his faith. This is a man who walks the walk and talks the talk. We hear his faith out of the gate and then we see it in action. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that God had set up a law to help the economically disadvantaged, as I'm, I'm putting a lot of people under that umbrella. You might say that law had a minimum to it. A minimum requirement. Do this or really don't do something. And then and then those that were economically disadvantaged, disadvantaged would would have something to eat. They would that would leave something for the poor. Well, Boaz knows the law. He knows the minimum and steps right over it and continues way past it. He knows the spirit of the law, the heart behind the law and his kindness surpasses what would be ordinary. It is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. We see him provide. We see him protect. We see him include. 
Don't forget who Ruth is. Don't forget her standing in society at this point and then look at what Boaz does. Remember that and look how far Boaz goes. And look, chapter 3 is interesting, okay? I'm going to be out of town. You can pray for David Burnett as he gets into chapter 3. Um, we know this is all heading after chapter 3 to a wedding at the end. But in this chapter right here, there's, there's no indication of romance in the language. Okay, don't read that into the text, because I think when we read that in, it sort of looks like Boaz is, is trying to go after Ruth. No indication of that at this point. I think if we read that in, we diminish what Boaz is doing. So no romantic goals. Don't dilute his kindness. This is a man of faith living out his faith in an incredible, very marked way. So just note a few things here. Verse nine, you see how he provides protection for Ruth. He orders the young men not to touch her. Remember, there's some danger here. He also tells her, you can drink from the water that the young men draw. That's backwards. Usually the women would have drawn for the men. Now you have the men drawing for a foreign woman. That's abundant provision. Verse 14, he invites her to the table. He feeds her. She was satisfied. There's a lot left over. She's included in the table. Those of you that have a biblical framework, like things are just going off right now in your mind, like I'm here, I'm starting to hear some things, connecting some dots. Verses 15 through 16, he orders the guys to make it easier on her to glean, leave, glean among the sheaves, even drop some of yours. Don't you dare rebuke her. So she ends up with a full stomach, leftovers, a few weeks worth of grain, not to mention he tells her, you come back here and you glean for the rest of the harvest. You don't go anywhere else. You are protected and provided for right here. This is not a daily provision. This is, I'm going to take care of you. Boaz is not asking what the minimum requirement of the law is. He's demonstrating what extravagant grace looks like. There's something else here just purposely skipped over so I could highlight it. According to what Ruth says in verse 13, Boaz did not just provide protection and provision. He spoke kindly. In the process of doing it. Kind speech is not to be diminished. I'm not sure the last time Ruth heard a kind word. Think about it. She traveled back from Moab with Eeyore. Her mother-in-law who stopped talking to her. She walks into town with the, the women making a fuss. I'm sure great things were not said about her. If anything was said to her. Here she is, destitute, and a man of valor, a man of standing, a man of substance, speaks kindly to her. Sometimes it's easier to provide and meet a need than it is to speak kindly into somebody's life. Because to speak kindly, you've you got to listen. You've got to sort of lean in. It's easy to stroke a check, give some cash. Boaz does both. And the effect on Ruth is apparent. So don't miss the speech that accompanies the action. All right. A lot more on Boaz and Ruth, but let's keep moving. Let's do a, a short character study now. Pick up the pace a little bit. Number three, let's see the noteworthy reversal of Naomi. I just mentioned Naomi's attitude as she came back to Bethlehem, um, giving her a hard time. But you really can't blame her. OK, she just doesn't look great next to Ruth, but she's been through a lot until the end of chapter two. She appears to be sort of. 
stuck in the bitterness. She's at home or wherever it is that they're staying. She doesn't even acknowledge Ruth at the end of chapter one and then lets her go out by herself uh, to work for food. Again, we don't know why, but things take a turn when Ruth comes back home with 30 pounds of barley. She is astonished at Ruth's hall for the day. Verse 19, where did you glean? Whose field? Blessed is whomever showed you favor. Then Naomi hears whose field Ruth was in, and suddenly the one who was expressing disdain for the situation the Lord had put her in is now casting out blessings all around. Verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord. Suddenly the rain cloud that was over her head is disappearing. The sun is starting to shine and you see Naomi. You start to see her go from bitterness to blessedness. There's a classic Puritan statement at play here that goes something like this. Grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. That's exactly what's happening here. Grace was evident It was already evident in the good news that the famine was over and the barley harvest was coming. Now, now that general grace has landed specifically in Naomi's lap. She is rejoicing now at the sight of God's provision, not not just of food that's significant, but at his potential provision of a redeemer, as she calls Boaz. Naomi's reversal of attitude and demeanor and posture here is noteworthy. The evident grace of God tends to have that effect on people, which leads to our next or our last character study. Finally, we're going to look at the character behind or above or under all the other characters. This is the character really driving the story. Finally, let's look at the generous provision of God. I'm sorry, the generous providence of God, the generous providence of God. Um, honestly, this we, we've already looked at this okay, through all these characters. But now we want to look at the character that was causing all of this to happen. We want to highlight who is ultimately responsible. You know, Boaz is, gives us a good picture of how even the godliest don't even see God's providence. We don't recognize God's providence, even the godliest among us. As one commentator said, providence is like Hebrew. It has to be read backwards. Okay, you have to like look at it in reverse and go, oh, that's what God was doing. Verse 12, Boaz says what sounds like a prayer. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You almost hear God saying, just open your eyes, Boaz. She's being repaid. That line is significant in any ways, but Boaz doesn't even seem to get that God is doing what he's praying for. He doesn't seem to recognize that he is the very instrument God is using to repay or reward Ruth. Now, quick pause here so we don't misunderstand what Boaz says there, what the author is saying. It sounds like he's praying for Ruth to get what she has earned from God, sort of a You could misread that and go, is that a works-based salvation that God just rewards those who do good things? And it really matters where you put faith in the equation. Okay, It really matters where you put faith in the equation. It could read like you've shown kindness to your mother-in-law, may the Lord repay you. But first of all, I think that would be putting her works and reward on the wrong side of her faith, as if she has earned favor with God. 
But even in what he says, it's clear that her works are on the right side of her faith. Because Boaz notes that Ruth has taken refuge in God. What she has done and is doing is flowing from a dependence and a relationship on God. Just like Boaz, Ruth's kindness is flowing out of God's kindness to her. She sought refuge in God. And now God is caring for her. So it's refuge. She's put her faith in God and now he's caring for her. Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful, merciful to me. Why? The psalm goes on to say, for or because in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Why be merciful to me, God? Because I trust you. Because I'm dependent on you. God cares for those under his care. Boaz doesn't even see that God is using him as a means of care. Now, the author here is a bit of a rhetorical master. Okay, The Hebrew readers probably picked up on something that we gloss right over. There seems to be another sort of throwaway line that's very significant in the text. In verse 3, we are told that Ruth set out to glean and she happened. You might underline that word. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. In our vernacular, as luck would have it, she ended up in Boaz's field. I hate to break it to you. No, I'm glad to break it to you. There is no luck in the Bible. Okay, the Hebrew readers would have quickly noted what's happening here. Yep, there's God. God's doing his thing. She happens to end up in the field. There were no field markers. Okay, there was no Alexander Shinar sign saying Boaz's field this way. Not to mention the narrator. The narrator may have introduced Boaz, but she has no clue who Boaz is yet. Okay, Naomi has to fill her in later. So she's not going out going, hey, is Boaz's field this way? Is this his? Can I start right here? She gets to go at Boaz's field because God wants her to be in Boaz's field. According to Acts 17, God made every nation from one man. And determine allotted periods and boundaries and their dwelling place. You know why every one of us right now live where we live, work where we work. You know why every one of us got out of bed and are sitting where we're sitting right now. Ultimately, God. Ruth took the initiative to go glean. She made the choice to do it. She walked the route that she walked. She chose the field to stop in. But God was sovereign over it all. And she was in Boaz's field. His generous providence. In his generous providence, her choices led her to the field of Boaz, where she found physical protection, emotional encouragement and material provision. And an abundance of all of it. Naomi, the bitter one, knows how it all went down. She knows, according to verse 20, who has ultimately shown kindness to both the living and the dead. Ruth happened to come to Boaz's field because God is both gracious and sovereign, even when he's silent. He didn't say a word, but he's still gracious and still sovereign. As Proverbs 16 says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, you know why Ruth is kind to Naomi? 
The same reason Boaz is kind to Ruth, the same reason she ended up in the field with kind protection and kind provision, the same answer for all the questions. God, in his generous providence, is the answer. I said this last week, but a book like Exodus gives us a picture of God's miraculous providence. The book of Ruth shows us God's meticulous providence, which, as we see here, is both merciful and generous. All right. A lot more could be said, but not today. All right. Four related appeals really quickly. This is an attempt at application. One appeal for each character. A lot more exhortations, appeals could be made from each character, but here's one for each of them. First, let's seek to emulate the humble standard of Ruth. Ruth doesn't resent who she is, what she is, her standing in society. She accepts it, goes well beyond it. She works hard, shows kindness, and does it with humility, almost as if it's her privilege to be able to respond in the way she does. Don't forget, and this applies to Boaz as well, this ethic or this standard flows out of her faith. Her faith, Boaz's faith, is seen in action in this book. Their works demonstrate their faith. There is really no indication that Naomi is helpless, okay? She may be much older, she may, you know, she is older, but we we don't know what's going on with her, but we do know that she's bitter, And how does Ruth respond to her bitterness with sacrificial care? Ask yourself that question. Are we willing to respond to bitter people in our lives with sacrificial care? Maybe Naomi could not help Ruth, but she was bitter. And I don't know what Ruth was hearing on a daily basis, but she decided to go out. I'm going to care for this woman. How does our work ethic stack up to Ruth? God may be sovereign over the circumstances, but Ruth is not lazy. Ruth works hard for what God ultimately provides. Can we say the same? Are we marked more by humility or pride? What does our posture look like? I'd love to tease these out, but we got to keep going. Do we act as if we deserve everything or if everything is of grace? Okay, let's emulate Ruth's posture here. So second, extend the abundant kindness of Boaz. Extend the abundant kindness of Boaz. Again, Boaz didn't just seek to follow the letter of the law, but to know and apply the spirit of law. He went above and beyond. Just think about it. When it comes to obeying God's commands, are we seeking the minimum? Are we looking for the line or are we looking for abundance? Think about giving. Okay, giving's always the frustrating one. In the New Testament, this is for you, Alex, had this conversation in the lobby. I actually did have something in here. In the New Testament, does God give us a minimum for giving? But aren't we all seeking it? (laughs) What's the minimum just so God can be happy? I would say the mark is generous and sacrificial. Put a definition to that. Can't find 10% in the New Testament. Are you seeking the minimum or are you leaning into sacrificial and generous? The amount looks different for every person. And you can apply this to so much more than just giving. Get a little bit more specific with Boaz. We can take a lot from him. But what about his care and kindness for the vulnerable? According to Deuteronomy 10 and so much of Scripture, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Boaz is a demonstration of how... God often does that. 
which is through his people. How does God care for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner and the immigrant and the foreigner? But how does he give them clothing and food through his people? How are we serving as instruments of God care, God's care for the most vulnerable? Whether that's the vulnerable children or women or the poor or the foreigner or the immigrant. Boaz is a picture of God's people protecting the vulnerable and providing for the needy. How about we ask ourselves this question? I asked myself this question this week. Do I even see what Boaz sees? Do I see the vulnerable in my field, so to speak? And if I do, do I have a heart of contempt for them or a heart of compassion? Do I even see them and then am I willing to sacrifice for them? This is where politics really messes us up. Politics and the media cause us to, to have a certain view, particularly of the immigrants and the alien or the foreigner. Not, I really tempted this week, like, let's, let's go into immigration law and start talking about that. Don't think God's word is against immigration laws. That's a discussion for another day. Ryan said he's going to handle that sometime in May, I think. What I'm going to say is we can't allow, as God's people, we cannot allow outside voices to cause us to miss the application of God's heart toward the immigrants and the vulnerable. It's hard to get more outside than Ruth. And look at how God treats her through Boaz. Number three, exult in discernible grace like Naomi. Exult in discernible grace like Naomi. Let's acknowledge something. It's hard to rejoice when the sun's not shining. Right? It's hard to rejoice. It's hard to rejoice when you're in the midst of bitter providence. It's hard to rejoice when the storm is raging. So I want to be real careful that we're not hard on people in Naomi's situation. Life is hard and providence can be bitter. God certainly works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that's not the easiest truth to receive and maybe not the one we come out of the gate with. We like to see from Naomi, let's not miss the opportunities that exists to exult when God's grace is discernible. Okay. It's often, think about it, I think God's grace is often discernible. It's, a, it's, it's more often discernible than we think about. We just miss it. So when we see it, let's rejoice in it because it's a game changer as it was for Naomi. As that Puritan saying goes, God, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual fall. We have to allow evident grace to soften our sin-hardened souls. Rejoice when we see grace, because it's hard to rejoice when providence is bitter. Just think about all the opportunities we have to do this, okay? None of us have experienced famine, I don't think. Okay, we don't know what it's like to go without food, I don't think. But every time we go to the grocery store, we have a time, uh, an opportunity to rejoice at the grace of God. Every paycheck, bill paid, debt made, met, every need provided for is an opportunity to rejoice in the evident grace of God. All right, let me land the plane. Last one, expect the merciful providence of God. I don't know where everybody's at in this room. I know where some people are. Not sure if things are great, things are horrible, somewhere in the middle. 
Not sure if you are before some trial that's about to happen in the middle of a trial or on the other side of that. But at least one takeaway from this story is that you can expect God's mercy. Those who are in Christ can expect his mercy. He is indeed working all things together for good for those that love him. No, Naomi had no idea what God was doing. Ruth had no idea what God was doing. But God was at work even in the midst of tragedy. Romans 28 was playing out in the background of this story. And Romans 28 is playing out in the background of your story. Relief, I don't know, relief may not come today or tomorrow or in the next few weeks, but relief will come. I can say with the utmost of confidence that you can expect the merciful providence of God. I don't know when it's coming, but one day soon God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I don't have cards that I can read. I can't look at your palm, but I can read this word and confidently tell you there is a good ending coming soon enough. God is meticulous in his care for you. I hope you know that. I hope you trust that. And I hope those around you will help you lean into that. All right. I have more, but I'm going to pray. And I heard watches beeping. It's two weeks in a row, so let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for the book of Ruth and a picture of meticulous providence. We just we'll pause right now. We've we've already prayed this. We'll pause right now that those that are walking through a season of difficulty or uh, about to be there will know. Will know God's, will know your evident mercy, that they can expect your good and merciful providence, that it is coming one day soon. That's been promised. We pray that we would collectively help one another to lean into that, to be reminded of that, to know that, to feel it. Would we be instruments of grace in one another's lives? Thank you for these truths, embed them in our hearts and our minds and apply them in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.